Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so excited to have Ray Armentrout here in the studio. Ray, welcome to WCBN. Oh, thank you, T. Thanks for being on Living Writers. And, and we are actually, we're talking on the 21st of March, um, 2011, um, here in Ann Arbor. <laughs> and Ray, you're in town because you'll be you'll be doing a reading and also um, doing a talk with Linda Gregerson, mm-hmm. um, which will be that'll be is that normal when you go? Well, actually, you picked Sweet Dreams, right? So maybe we'll start with the music. Um, all okay. of these songs are of Ray's choosing that we'll hear today in the program. Um, and we were we were talking about how it's a danceable song. It does good things for a dance floor. And and then you said it also had new meaning for you recently. Yeah, because it's about uh, traveling the world and what do you what you what you find when you're on the road. And I've been on the road a lot lately. I'm beginning to feel like a touring rock band. So <laughs> I'm getting into the decadent rock band spirit. So is this why Where you're are here? The groupies? All in leather. Yeah. Right? Okay. Exactly. That's tomorrow. <laughs> Tomorrow. Okay. Stay tuned, listeners. <laughs> and so you're touring now because you have a new book just out with Wesleyan Press, Money Shot. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and so where where is Stephanie Elliott and everyone at Wesleyan sending you? Where's where are you touring around? Oh. Some you know, of the hot spots. Because we have podcasts, so people listeners may be able to yeah. come and see you in different locales. I have locales. Uh, almost lost track. Let's see. I was uh, recently I went to of all places, Long Beach, to talk to the, I, I kid you not, the literary ladies of Long Beach. <laughs> the LLLs. LLLs. And I've been to Louisville to a conference, and I've been to Iowa to the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Many cold places, not counting Long Beach. Yes, so so on the road, and mm-hmm. and, and I just met Chuck as yeah. well, your husband Chuck, mm-hmm. and so he's out there. He is. Um, <laughs> he's on his Kindle. He doesn't know where he is. <laughs> okay, because you guys are just a buzz. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for stopping in Ann Arbor on part of this this world tour, and and I can only imagine with um, coming off of Versed, which was your your mm-hmm. your your book just before this. Um, Pulitzer Prize winning poet um, also you you must have been touring as that for ages and being the the representative of what all that means I think I got I got a lot more invitations after that and so I've been (laughs) I've been uh, going somewhere almost every week it's almost too much I'm, I'm beginning to write a series of poems Accidentally, really, that have to do with hotel rooms and airports. So, <laughs> by necessity, yeah, right. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> with your astute observations, yeah. I think if that's what's always being presented to you, I tend to be very present oriented. So if I'm, you know, presently in a hotel room or an airport, <laughs> then that gets in. <laughs> Well, that's, well, well, then stay tuned for that. It can be like the first book of poems that's more like, um, I don't know. It could be called JFK, but mean something completely no, no, different. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Newark is more the hub. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a hard one, isn't it? <laughs> Nothing against New Jersey. Um, but, um, well, Ray, you know what? Before we go any further, I will read your short bio out of the back of Money Shot. Um, okay. Uh Ray Armentrout is a professor of writing in the literature department at the University of California 
at San Diego, and the author of 10 books of poetry, including Versed, Next Life, and Veil, New and Selected Poems. And so many books that we even have on the, up, on the table here, we have that Stephanie kindly sent, uh, Next Life, Up to Speed, as well as those just mentioned. So, and I was hoping, wasn't able to get a copy of True, your memoir. But, oh, really? Um, it, they were was, advertising it on Amazon. Well, no, uh, it's just, life is, as you know. Oh, okay, <laughs> I don't mean to blame you, sorry. <laughs> was there guys went right. yeah, not to not to say that listeners can't quickly get online and get a copy of true um which is but i just i wish i would have had a chance to 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 take a look at that before but since you're here yeah <laughs> let's talk a little bit about memoir-esque things okay and um and i'm hoping later in the program you might even read the 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 poem autobiography um urn burial urn burial <laughs> yes um so the way that the self is packaged yeah and pa- oh and packet yes packeted we're moving from like the the sort of the rock star leather outfit to the 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 final containers <laughs> right <laughs> or Anyway, not to be grim. I have a kind of ambivalence about memoir that probably comes out in that title and elsewhere. Also, when the in the title, true. Yes, because just playing with true that makes right you up think front. Of false, right? Instantly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or the fact that you'd have to mention that it was true mm-hmm. yeah. should be a red flag. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, you were born in Vallejo, California, mm-hmm. and um, and when I, I I've never been there but is it close to San Diego because now you're working in you've you've spent well your life in the west it yeah. seems to me from the bits That's of true. bio that I've I always find. lived in California I am a Californian <laughs> and and what does that mean to you as a writer um it's hard to know because you'd have to compare growing up in California with growing up somewhere else and you really can't live two lives so I would have to guess but I mean it I grew up I I actually grew up in San Diego even though I uh, Vallejo is near San Francisco and uh but I didn't grow up in San Francisco so my family my dad was in the navy and uh so we ended up in San Diego and that's where my first memories are and we, my parents... What, what age is that that you're imagining now, Ray? Like, was when you about, say your first memories? Oh, three or four, you know. So uh, my parents were in Navy housing at first, and then they bought a house in a neighborhood called Allied Gardens, <laughs> which, uh, you know, basically was sold to people with uh, veterans' loans. Because post-World War Two. Yes, post-World War Two, And... Um, Allied Gardens was kind of on the eastern fringe of the city, so nowhere near the beach. And it was very far from, just very, very far from anything we might associate with culture. I mean, my parents kind of like country music, but that was, you know, that was Hank Williams, which is great, but, you know, that was my idea of culture. Well, that's a deep American culture. Yeah, right, 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 right. And my mother was sort of a storyteller, which is also, I guess, a part of... American culture, so she would tell me stories, which turned out to sometimes maybe be true, but often not, about, um, I think that's where the title true comes from, um, about her childhood and youth in uh, the panhandle of Texas, etc. But my point being that 
she also read poetry to me, and somewhere along the way, I started to want to write poetry, and I started writing poetry. So here I was, in a sense, in the middle of nowhere, far from any living poets, as far as I knew, writing poetry. And, and this I, is what age now, would you say? Oh, I started, right? really, kindergarten, first grade. Mm-hmm. I was writing down poems, and I had a teacher who encouraged me, and we made a little mimeographed book, and I continued to do that really until high school, and then I kind of got discouraged with it, and then I picked it up again in college. So really, most of my youth, I was... I wonder what's discouraged you in high school. Was it the way... Because was poetry being taught in high school? Because, you know, there's sort of these waves of when mm-hmm. poetry gets to resurface again yeah. as a component of high school English, and then it sort of fades away, or there's a couple of... I did poem. write some poetry in high school too. I but I had a because that's when a and this lot of is people not what discouraged. <laughs> this is not what discouraged me. This just pissed me off. But when I was a senior in high school, I had a male uh, English teacher who told me women can't write poetry. I guess he'd never heard of Emily Dickinson. I don't know. I know, sexism was uh, much more out front. When I was that age. <laughs> and so for that, did that just make it go underground for you? Like you thought, because before a teacher had been sort of this conduit yeah. and a mimeograph yeah. and the, right. like a book. Right, right, right. Um, I think I began to realize at a certain point that what I was writing wasn't very good. and But then I, I kept at it uh, in college and started had a breakthrough maybe and when I was a senior in college. And you were at Berkeley at that time. Yeah. I started out at San Diego State, which was near Allied Gardens. And then I transferred when I was a junior to Berkeley. And it was when I went to Berkeley that I started to actually meet living poets. I took a class from Denise Levertov. And I also uh, met other young people who were very serious about being writers and who became writers. So it was a whole different atmosphere. And were those people that you also, like, are the group of people that you would send poems out even now to? Yeah, to... yeah. I met my friend Ron Silliman there, and we are in still in constant correspondence, although now he lives in Philadelphia and I'm in San Diego. And some other people, um, yeah. And Ron wrote, wrote the um The, the, the introduction to Vale, yeah. Yes, which is kind of a lovely framing mm-hmm. thing. And I think that's the only reason why I I know that you send out a lot of like like poems mm-hmm. to, to many like different readers and Yeah, and I the, the list of people I send poems out to has has uh shrunk down a bit. I think just because everyone is so busy now. Um and maybe I'm a little bit more confident, I don't know. But I have some other friends. Fanny Howe, I'll send things to. Lydia Davis, who's a fiction writer. I, and I love what she said um, for your book, Up to Speed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, Lydia Davis, author of Samuel Johnson is Indignant. Um, is the work funny? Absolutely. Moving? Yes. But beware. After reading Armantrout, you will question everything, including what it means to be funny and moving. <laughs> High praise indeed. Yes. <laughs> and Lydia's a wonderful writer. Yes, yes. I love her boring friends. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and Letter to a Funeral Parlor, actually, as well, where it's yeah. cremains. <laughs> the cremains, yeah. And and she, of course, is the translator 
uh, recently of Swan's Way and Madame Bovary. Oh yes, because working in the the French mm-hmm. then, yeah. and, mm-hmm. uh, and and Paul Oster, friend of the sh- mm-hmm. show, uh, oh, also okay. translator. Um, well, this is so this is so great. Now I feel like we've we've roamed so many places around mm-hmm. California, and and what made you go to Berkeley? Like, what was like to know that you wanted to actually move from home up the coast mm-hmm. a bit? Were you knowing, hey, I'm going to bump into a living writer up there <laughs> named Denise Levertoff, or why did you? That go? was actually actually surprised when I got there. Um, well, if you lived in California at that time, the Bay Area was, and if you were anything like me, the Bay Area was just this kind of mythical mecca. I had been there to go to what anti- What time was that? Um, 69. I I had been there in 68 uh, to an anti-war protest, which was huge and took place in San Francisco and went through the Haight-Ashbury and the the demonstrators would would sort of wind their way in and out of the apartments of hippies that lived there and then into Golden Gate Park where Ginsburg was talking and you know it just seemed like uh, the place you'd want to be right it was what was that was where things were happening. As a thinking, feeling youth. Yeah. <laughs> or anyone, really. But definitely that. So you heard Ginsburg in the park, mm-hmm. too, Ray? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, well, we'll be back. We're going to take a short break. And then would you read us some poems when sure. we come back? All right. We'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Ray Armentrout is here. Her latest book, Money Shot, with Wesleyan Press. We'll be back. That the days are loaded Everybody rolls With their fingers crossed Everybody knows The war is over Everybody knows The good guys lost Everybody knows The fight was fixed The poor stay poor The rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows that the boat is leaking Everybody knows the captain lied Everybody got this broken feeling Like their father or their dog just died Everybody talking to their pockets Everybody wants Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, it's a lucky thing because today we've got Ray Armentrout here in the studio. Um, her latest book, Money Shot, latest collection of poems. Um, thanks also to Liz Wason for engineering uh, this morning. Thanks to the Liz. <laughs> Ray, so the um, we just heard some Leonard Cohen there. Everybody knows. So haunting. <laughs> and creepy. <laughs> um, and so why did, why did you pick this Cohen song and, and maybe some of the other songs that are coming up? too well um i love the tone of his voice for one thing as i think you were mentioning but that song is uh pretty pointedly political at least in some places uh you know everybody knows the captain lied you know everybody knows the war's over everyone knows the good guys lost um etc etc so it's uh got a lot of kind of political pessimism in it, I suppose. 
Do you want me to talk about the other songs I picked, oh, too? Oh, yes, coming up. Yeah, coming up. Okay. Uh, then there's this great song by Bob Dylan that's not well-known at all because it's on his most recent album, which I think most people probably haven't heard. Um, it's called It's All Good. And he plays around with that uh, too commonly heard phrase, that kind of blasé phrase, it's all good. Ah, it's just, and and what he does is he, <laughs> he uh, you know, paints several really, you know, dark scenarios. I'm, I'm not good at quoting necessarily, but um, uh, people so sick they could hardly stand. Everyone would move away if they could. So you get the sense that there's some pollution, maybe like, you know, Love Canal or something. But it's all right because it's all good. And, and it just goes on like that. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and now with Japan, too, with yeah, the radiation. Exactly. How to contain right. it and right, right. as the days pass. Exactly. And which way does the wind blow? Well, it's all good as long as it's not your direction mm-hmm, or you're mm-hmm. not. So when you hear that song, just listen for that. It's really a great song. And then the the next one, the Natalie Merchant song, um, I guess is a little more personal maybe in that it's She's talking about her position as a privileged or suddenly privileged person uh, and, you know, who has a lot more opportunities than a lot of the people around her. Uh, She says this uh, in the diamond market, this something about a red carpet that they just rolled out for me. And feeling ambivalent about that and about how much she's blinded to by being in, in this relatively privileged position. And although I am certainly by by no means as wealthy as Natalie Merchant must be, I do feel rather privileged now uh, in many ways and, uh, you know, relatively safe. And then I sort of wonder uh, what that's doing to my psyche, you know. So that's what that song's about. And when you're when you're saying privilege, does that also mean stability or does that... Yeah, I'm, I am a tenured professor, so I have stability... Um, I'm now. A, did that happen early on, Ray, or when did? Because no, actually, that happened fairly recently for me. And then, um, you know, see, seeing that my latest books have had some success, you see the the difference in the way people treat you. You know, mm. and uh, I don't know. I don't want to get too much into that, but I I'm I'm just saying I could uh, sort of relate to the way uh, Natalie Merchant was seemed to be feeling in the song. And, and then the next, the um, Salt of the Earth, also a political oh, song. Oh, yeah, that's an old stone stones. song that's very political. It's got some lines in it that, uh, I mean, it, it starts out, let's drink to the salt of the earth, but it, it becomes kind of... Do they mean margaritas? <laughs> uh, sort of, I think. I mean, I, I think that it's, you know, that it, that it actually is a kind of two-edged song that, that really it's about wanting to identify with the masses but not really be knowing that you can't really identify with the masses but it's got some great lines in it they're kind of buried because you know it's hard to understand Mick Jagger but <laughs> but um but he does say uh let's give the grace the gray-suited grafters a choice of cancer or polio and he also says something about uh people who need leaders but get gamblers instead mm-hmm. and I was I was looking for songs to play, and I was playing that album thinking of using other songs because I don't listen to that song much. But when that song came up and I heard those lines, I went, wow, that's actually pretty relevant for right now. And you had mentioned when we were off air, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and and the and we were talking before we even started the program about the 
California and Michigan can get together with sympathy mm-hmm. about the the political climate and what struggles. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we're we're all, I guess, some states more than others, but certainly California and Michigan are in uh, are suffering from um, the financial crisis that really is the effect of uh, gamblers in the banks, in the big banks, who manage to actually get away with their gamble and uh you know no one else managed to get away uh, i know (laughs) and and when you when you think that i i heard a statistic recently that it's unbelievable but i i heard it from a a reliable source that the richest 400 people in the united states have as much capital as much wealth as half of the rest of the population of the united states put together so most of that capital that they have is not in circulation. So, and it won't be trickling and, down. And anytime it won't be soon. trickling down yeah. anytime soon. <laughs> if, if anything, it's going into offshore investment or whatever. So there are these financial crises that are, you know, not just natural occurrences after all. And um, so I think we have a right to be angry about them. And of course, we're seeing the effects in. But some of the anger seems to be manifesting in defense of these very people keeping yeah. all the money from people that aren't yeah, uh, like, like that's, like, that's like that's liberty or something. It may be changing a little bit. I hope because you know you see the size of the demonstrations in Wisconsin and and some other states too. I don't know if that's happening here, but but we can only hope that that will spread because what's what what's happening now is a kind of um, attempt ridiculous but pervasive to blame um, public sector employees on to, to blame the, the the financial hard times on the pensions of school teachers as opposed <laughs> it's to say just, it's uh, absurd. you know the financial system in general and bankers in particular <laughs> and someone severance and, package <laughs> yeah right when you yeah. leave your job that you should be in a cloud of shame but instead you're rolling out in a golden chariot or yeah something. <laughs> I know right <laughs> So, um, and we laugh, and yet it's like, oh no! Yeah. <laughs> <It's> so <laughs> so that's a, that weird kind of magician's misdirection. Don't exactly don't look over here at bankers and Wall Street. Look over here at school teachers and bus drivers. You know, and, it's, <laughs> and this is what I think. Like, well, and tell me definitely right away if I'm completely off base here, Ray. But this language poetry, like looking at the misdirection of mm-hmm. language itself, exactly. and here we've got this naming mm-hmm. and trying to. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the, I mean, first I want to say that I think the phrase, the name language poetry is unfortunate and kind of stupid because it sounds (laughs) redundant. However, it comes from a magazine that was called Language Magazine. So there is a reason for that. But anyway, yeah, language poetry was a a formation of groups of uh, poets that coalesced in the mid to late 70s into the early 80s in San Francisco and in New York. And I think that um, part of it had to do with the misdirection and manipulation of language that we saw then around the Vietnam War. You know, the uh, had to uh, destroy the village in order to save it. Or the, the Freedom Hamlets, which were concentration camps, you know, that kind of thing. So I, th- I think that a, a kind... There was... That was... Really, the, the the first time I was aware of what we now call spin, mm. we didn't have that word then. But, you know, I think language poetry um, 
was an attempt to be to reflect back that kind of spin and question it at the same time. And I still do that in my work to some extent. And so are you saying that with the the language poetry that there was a a time for it mm-hmm. and then because it seems like the things um, when when a group of people start doing something, then there becomes and this I don't mean this in a the way that the word is often used, like but conventions that people work within or ways um, well, like I prin- think recognizable principles of what the mm. work is, whether it's like mm-hmm. the serious play of examining syllables or mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we're all very different writers it turns out we all have very different sensibilities and and our work um, uh, on the face of it often looks quite different but I think that you know at base we do have some things in common one is that critical analytical spirit but another thing another part of it is um, the I the idea or the, the tendency to make poems out of separate or separable units, whether that unit be the sentence or the section, because I often have numbered sections in my poems, uh, or the stanza, but to have those units be autonomous in some way uh, and able to sort of, so so that the reader kind of, or the listener, sort of has to make a leap to connect them and has to think about how things are connected uh, or whether they are, and um, that things might be connected in ways we don't see at first, which I is some, which is something I'm interested in, and I think other so-called language poets are interested in too. And so, are so can people then? It it almost seems like it's a way of working in poems, and that once it's articulated in a certain way or groups start to do it, mm-hmm. even if their work looks vastly different. Mm-hmm. Um, then it becomes infused then in what is. Um, and so then is it that people are like, would you even still say that people are language poets or is it just in the what is? And so it's one of the modes of working now or ways of seeing how people might already be writing poetry mm-hmm. Well, I I think it that some of the techniques of language poetry were also present in modernism, so it's not that brand new. And also some of the techniques of language poetry have been influential among certain groups of younger poets, too. So there's nothing, I think, at this point absolutely unique about this group of poets. <laughs> That sounds modest, but... (laughs) Yeah, I don't... um, Maybe we should read some poems now. (laughs) Would you you mind reading one? Maybe that would be wonderful. Maybe I'll... I'm going to read a short one and a longer one because they take off on... uh, Oh, my my latest book is called Money Shot, (laughs) which is a kind of of double entendre, obviously. Um, But it's... I mean, money shot, as most of you will know, is a term that comes from porn, but the book's not. The book has, I would say, no porn in it, although it has a little sex, but it is, um, to some extent, uh, concerned with money and with the financial world that I was just talking about and with power. So I'll read a couple of poems that relate to that. 
and rape. And many of the poems have titles with the word money in it. And could could we hear the the first one, and then we'll take a short break, okay. and then come back and continue the conversation? Does sure. That sound good? Okay. okay. Well, this first one is called Money Talks. Money is talking to itself again in this season's bondage and safari look, its close-out camouflage. Hit the refresh button, and this is what you get, money pretending that its hands are tied. On a billboard by the 880, money admonishes, shut up and play. Thank you, Ray. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Ray Armentrout, her latest poetry collection, Money Shot. We'll be back. Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Ray Armentrout here, her latest money shot. Um, and then also, just before this, we also have The Versed, um, which which also won the, the National Book Award, as well as the Pulitzer Prize, no, it didn't won, it, it? It was a finalist oh, for the, the National Book Award. It won the National Book Critic Circle that's Award. It. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay, I, that's hard to say. <laughs> that's a long. It's well. It's good to know these awards are out there and that you're winning them. I'm. I'm very glad. Yeah. <laughs> um, I only found out they were out there shortly before I won them. So. <laughs> in California, we're far away from all that. In New York, you ask me what it's like growing up in California. One thing is that you're 
you know, it's I, I assume it's totally different from growing up in New York. New York must have lots of wonderful cultural stimulation. But I think for a writer or an artist, it's always, it's also very high pressure because you are in the midst of, you know, the center where all of this this money is given out and this prestige happens and you're you must be aware of it constantly where in California it's pretty distant really. Yes. And perhaps perhaps in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah, per- perhaps you think. <laughs> I I love that it seems like that the the political has been a, just a driving force in your life and in your work and how you write what maybe why you write. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what happened as you went back well, not. It's not like you ever left it, but you said you had that that sort of that pause mm-hmm. in the high school time, and then going to undergrad, and then and then choosing to go for a master's. Like, yeah, San Francisco State is where I got that. Were um, you writing just poems all the time then, Ray? And and did you manage to get a collection out? Like, I'm not even sure about when your first, first book, book came, came out. out in '79. And it was on a very small press and a run of 500. But that was okay. You know, I mean, back then, and I think still now, you know, there there is a, there are a lot of good, small, independent presses publishing a lot of great stuff. And um, it wasn't that expensive then. And I think it isn't that expensive now. Somehow people manage to do it, you know. And uh, I was living in San Francisco at the time, so there was an audience right there. There were a lot of... Uh, poetry reading, readings in cafes and bars and you could go to a poetry reading any night i guess that's also obviously the case in new york but it was true in san francisco then too and so there was there were just a lot of young people on the scene doing their own publishing and you know and that's how my first book came about and it was called extremities and then later there was a play right called that same thing and i went bummer but <laughs> You should have gone to the play and handed out copies. Yeah. <laughs> For a price of the course. original extremity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so were you then out making the scene in a way, Ray, going to these different yeah. cafes, yeah. reading from extremities? Like yeah, what? definitely. And uh, there was especially um, a coffee house called The Grand Piano, where uh, language poets, so called, had a lot of readings, and uh, Ron Silliman ran it for a while, and I was the coordinator for a while, and some other people, Tom Mandel. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of our spot, but we went to other spots, too, like Intersection for the Arts was what was a place where there were a lot of good readings, for instance. And so and so the Grand Piano, and then the people from Intersection from the Arts would be coming to the Grand Piano, and there would yeah, be this... Yeah, there was a, a, a lot of uh, different scenes mixing in a semi-friendly way, at least, you know, for a while. And with reading your your poems, because so so many of maybe well maybe this isn't true, but the the with the earlier poems with the construction of the poems themselves, um, was it did it ever feel like you thought oh I have to how am I how is it going to feel to read this aloud to convey what's also like elements of structure that might be more mm-hmm. visible on the mm-hmm. page mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Um, well the 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 main question for me, I guess, was how quickly or how slowly to read, because especially when you're new to it, you tend to read very quickly because you're shy and you want to get it over with. And you have to fight against that tendency. Also, there was the question, especially back then, of how long to pause to indicate a line break. Um, There was a theory, an idea, 
begun by the poet Charles Olson that the line should should represent the breath of the poet. And uh, most of my lines are short. And one poet I liked a lot in my youth was Robert Creeley, who also had very short, and I still like his work, had very short lines. And he would make really dramatic pauses at the end of his lines when he read. And I couldn't stand to do that. I found that embarrassing. But I always try to make it some pause at the end of my line to indicate the line break and a slightly longer pause to indicate a stanza break. And when the poems have different sections, a yet longer pause to indicate that. So I guess I have my method, but that that would be what it would be, the question of how long to pause in those different places to indicate, you know, the, the structure of the poem. And then, so then those are the rhythms, yeah. too. So mm-hmm. not only in, within the, the beats of the language, but the rhythms of how, yeah. Because then in a way, it's like performing mm-hmm. it, even though that has that weird, also a little bit of the weird connotations. Yeah. I, I certainly see people who I think overperform, but I guess I perform a little bit. <laughs> or, or at least in the being conscious of these, the, this mm-hmm. is the, the, this beat for this to indicate that. Yeah. And so the, the listener does have that experience. Mm-hmm. I hope. Even if you're not charting it out for the, yeah. like, <laughs> the board, like what the lines is. Do, right, do, right, like, right, right. Learning to play the recorder. <laughs> <laughs> but you asked me a while back if my central motive for writing was political. I think that's only one of my reasons for writing. I mean, I I think that uh, most writers write because they're dissatisfied. And their dissatisfaction, there may not be a name for it or a reason for it. It starts early, but they're mentally restless. And And maybe to understand, Yeah, to understand. I mean, I often write when I feel puzzled, in fact. You know, when, when I see something... Maybe everyone's laughing at something, and I think, why is that funny? What's funny about that? And then when I follow that through, you know, it may or may not be political, right? I mean, I'm also interested in science, for in- just for instance, and I will read um, popular physics books like Brian Greene. I mean, I, you know, I don't pretend to understand it at any deep level because I don't have the math, but um, I just find some of the scientific concepts so strange and intriguing that I want to think more about them and they suggest images and metaphors to me. So I don't want to imply that my writing is all about or is limited to uh, politics. And and as you were speaking, Ray, it struck me that it's so often the case that poets especially will say that they're reading science or they're, they're very interested in this particular part, mm-hmm. the science or reading a science magazine or the, the mm-hmm. p- popular books in yeah. the, the, that are supposed to be meant for like the layperson yeah. to have uh-huh. the entryway yeah. into the ideas. And so it just, it, it makes me laugh a little bit about how, um, whether people mean to have it happen or not, but in our education system early on, you're like supposed to be more in in the English camp or you're in the sciences Uh or you're in the maths when actually if like what like people are writing to try to understand people are doing experiments to try to understand. (laughs) It's all just these ways of trying to understand. Yeah. Right. Um, Except that in this, I respect the sciences more, perhaps. The scientists who try to understand have to actually come up with some 
proof that validates their the way they imagine reality, whereas artists can just imagine reality. I mean, you know, you, you come as close to it as you can. I'm not a fanciful writer, but, you know, I don't have to prove anything. I can say one thing one time and a completely opposite thing another time. And as long as they're both intriguing ideas and well stated, it flies. But that's not it's not that's not true for scientists, obviously. Yeah, the word proof means something very yeah. solid in the <laughs> right, sciences, right. like what's required of you for that. Whereas, but I would say what you're doing in each of these books is providing your own proof, like page after page of what you believe is the proof. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I try, but in, a, in another sense, it's a kind of mock proof. <laughs> I mean, I, I take the structure of I, I take the structure of logic and the structure of proofs, but sometimes I'm goofing on them in a way because, you know, I, it's not really a proof. But it's like, Try thinking about it this way. See what that does to your head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and try saying something to a Republican that they're not going to like somebody who's a solid Fox News watcher mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or try say something to a Democrat that would only MSNBC. And so maybe one of your poems can float in there <laughs> where people can maybe try, whereas sometimes their minds are closed unless it's a particular voice that's speaking to them. Oh, you think people's minds are open to poetry. You idealist, you. <laughs> I know. I was just like, but how are we going to have that happen where the poem's floating around for them to <laughs> kind of come into... Yeah, I'm going to read this to Hannity any minute now. He's going to have me on the show. Then Bill O'Reilly. Because he wants I'll to attack help, me. Be... After this, he's going to want to. <laughs> this is where you're going next, right? Right? Yeah, your your booking it. agent. That's the next flight. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Bill O'Reilly, if you're if you have any listeners out there, you should get Bill O'Reilly to call Ray Armentrout. Let's set this up. Or Stephen Colbert. He would be a well, nice platform. Yeah, yeah. Stephen Stephen Colbert is great. Kindred spirit. He, he uh, <laughs> if you mention poetry to him, he can start quoting it. You know, he's <laughs> or I mean any other subject. I'm a big fan of his. <laughs> so have you Ray have you been on the rapport then oh god no okay oh yeah I was like, uh-huh. I was like I gotta get that I've gotta do get that link right away <laughs> no 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 <laughs> well I think you should they should don't go. they don't usually have poets I think he had a poet once he had yeah, who was that I'm a, I am trying to remember Elizabeth Alexander oh, I right. think yeah mm-hmm. yeah but after because right. she was going to give the yeah. poem at the inauguration then, yeah right okay so she was high profile uh, poets <laughs> poets in their ways um well let's take I'll, I'll tell you what let's take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll hear another poem okay Ray, does that sound good yeah thanks so much for being here today this has just been a blast oh thanks for having me well we have got some more time left so okay. take a short break right <laughs> back living writers today on the program ray armentrout her latest money shot <laughs> Talk about me, babe, if you must Throw out the dust, pile on the dust I'd do the same thing if I could You know what they say, they say it's all good All good, it's all good Big politicians Telling lies Restaurant kitchen All full of flies Don't make a bit of difference Don't see why it should But it's alright 
Cause it's all good It's all good It's all good Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Ray Armantrout. And then we had a little bit of Bob Dylan, his latest album. I've actually heard heard that album, too. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> and we, you were you were actually, Ray was sort of tapping a lot. <laughs> yeah. I love that song. That's such a good one. And his voice, too, because he is, he's like, he, he is a truth teller. Yeah. And I think his last two albums are really good. I mean, I kind of lost interest in him for a time, but... Modern Times, and this one's called Together Through Life. They're just excellent. Yes. Yes. So Bob Dylan. Woo! I know. <laughs> Cont- taking the fight to them for how many years mm-hmm. now, you know? <laughs> well, Ray, um, w- will you read us a poem? Would sure. You, um, would you mind reading that autobiography? Of, or or w- wait, w- there was another one you were going to read I, first. I'll, I'm going to read uh, Bubble Wrap, and then yes. I'll read your autobiography one. Okay. I wanted to hear Okay, bubble wrap. This was written, I started writing it uh, right around the time that the stock market lost about 6,000 points in one day. And uh, pundits on the radio were, you know, hysterical. And so that was kind of coming into the language and that was getting into my head. So anyway, bubble wrap. Want to turn on CNN? See if there have been any disasters? In the dream, you slip inside me. Ponzi scheme. Rhyme scheme. The child wants his mother to put her head where his is. See what he sees. In the dream, inside the dream, our new roommates are arguing. These are not astroturf calls, and we're all populists now. Now an engine's single indrawn breath, the black hole at the heart of it is taking it all back. An immigrant sells scorpions of twisted electrical wire in front of the right aid. Thank you, Ray. Yeah, that last moment is is so amazing too. When you think that. Um, that that's the perfect uh, there. So you're building this image as you go. And then the last moment is the name of the shop, mm-hmm. which he's out selling outside. Yeah. So being commerce on the mm-hmm. outside of the shop. And it could have, it wasn't, it wasn't that it was CVS because the best, the important naming of it was right aid. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. something that's going to be the right yeah, yeah, healing yeah. thing. That was great. <laughs> and I did see a guy like that. I usually don't make things up. Uh, so there's a lot to actually see in the world. And, it, you know, he was, I mean, it was it was striking, especially when you were thinking that the economy as you knew it was collapsing. And this was the new economy. We're just going to make scorpions out of electrical wire and sell them to each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Scorpion sale. <laughs> Yeah. And what does that say, too, with, like, the poisonous nature of Yeah. <laughs> I know. So I couldn't let that pass. Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, you have to see it. And it's something unsettles you with it. And then That's the it. I- image yeah. returns. Yeah, yeah. Um, I take notes as I go around the world. I have a little blank book I carry with me. And, you know, when I... I mean, not everything is something I saw, but a lot of things in my poems, a lot of times they start from something I really heard or really saw, and then I just 
think more about the implications of it. And do you have, is it like a pocket-sized one, right? Yeah. Is mm-hmm. it? So it's, it's there with you. Yeah. Should I read the other one? If you'd like. Okay. I would love it. Okay. Autobiography, urn burial. I could say authenticity will have been about trying to overtake the past, inhabit it long enough to look around, say, oh, but the past is tricky, holds off. So are we really moving, or is this something like the way form appears to chase function? I might hazard that my life's course has been somewhat unusual. When I say that, I hear both an eager claim and a sentence that attempts to distance itself by adopting the style of a 19th century English gentleman. The failed authority of such sentences is soothing, like watching masterpiece theater. When I recount my experiences, whatever they may have been, I'm aware of piping tunes I've heard before, or jumbled snatches of familiar tunes. The fancy cannot cheat for very long, can it? In the moment of experience, one may drown while another looks on. Thanks, Ray. I was I was curious to hear you read that one because of the direct naming of autobiography mm-hmm. to say forefront it somehow. Well, I started writing that one because uh, some of my language poetry colleagues started writing a collective autobiography, which we called The Grand Piano, based on that coffee shop. And so there are 10 of us involved. Actually, it's the project is just finished. We put out 10 volumes, um, and each of us writes something that has to do with uh, memories of the late 70s or the early 80s. And I have a kind of resistance to autobiography. I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying that the, that the other people involved don't. I think we all have a complex relationship to it. But, I mean... I, s- stories are uh, selective, you know. You, can, you If you tell everything, if you could remember everything that happened, and you can't, but if you could, it wouldn't be a story. So a story is um, something that you learn to tell. It has conventions. A story is a genre. Also, autobiography is genre. There are we've read autobiographies. We know certain voices uh, that uh, in which autobiographies are told. Um, so there's an artifice to it. I'm saying, first of all, memory is. In fact, at least mine is, spotty and contradictory. We've probably all had the experience of uh, talking to either a sibling or someone we've known well for a long time, like a spouse, and finding out that they either remember entirely different things or they remember the same thing quite differently than we do, and we're left thinking, well, what is the truth? Um, So that's one of my problems with autobiography. And then the other problem is just this, in what tone will you tell it? Uh, What voice are you taking up? And is that voice your voice? Or is it a conventional voice in some way? And then in the second part of this poem, um, I don't know if you caught it, but I actually start quoting Keats. The fancy cannot cheat is from Keats. Right. And uh, yeah. And so, um, so you have many voices coming in, yeah, because you have the masterpiece theater, theater voice and the nineteenth century English gentleman, and 
And you lead with that mm-hmm. question of authenticity, right. like the authentic voice. Yeah, right, right, right. And the 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 urn burial mm-hmm. is that also because of Keats? Or, yeah, or, yeah, yes, it is. Right, <laughs> yeah, that's a play on Keats. Too. Didn't didn't get that till just now. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely odes. <laughs> And so, so this resisting to autobiography, but also from what you just said before, having it be the complete material that you're always working with. Yeah. Um, and filters. That's true. Or how you're that's, filtering it and how you're... Yeah. Someone pointed out to me recently the contradiction in the fact that I am so skeptical skeptical of autobiography, but I am always kind of mining my own experience. But it's usually my own present experience or the recent past uh, uh. and not the deep past because, you know, the, the farther away things are, the, the more spotty the memory is. And people tend to remember things. I think this has been scientifically proved, speaking of science. People tend to remember things um, that kind of confirm their own sense of themselves. You know, they'll, they'll remember things in which they did well or they were heroes. Or if they feel, if they have a kind of victim identity, they'll remember scenarios in which they felt like a victim. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's selective memory, and uh, we all know that. Yeah, but, and how do you carve new paths for yourself yeah. out of that? Yeah. So I try to kind of stick with <laughs> what I see or have recently seen and see how I can connect that. I'm not saying that nothing from the deep past ever comes up, but hmm. as I said in the beginning, I'm pretty present-oriented. Yeah. Um, the vulnerability, I would think, uh, of that, because in a way, there's a way you can then be intellectual about the present moment mm-hmm. as you're... Um, but I wonder, in a way, how it felt for you in verse mm-hmm. when you were writing about your cancer, dealing yeah. with cancer. Right. Well, that clearly was, you know, autobiographical in that I w- was writing about mortality while I was actually facing mortality. Um, it doesn't always announce itself as such. Do you want me to read one poem from first, or are we at... Okay. I'm going to read... This one called On Your Way, which is a prose poem, which means I won't be doing the lion break thing as much. Uh, And this is the first poem that I wrote when I got home from the hospital after having had surgery. And a lot of the weird imagery here actually comes from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. On Your Way. On your way to the Sea of Reeds, you will meet the soul-devouring demon. You've heard it all before, and you believe it. Why not? Why would they lie? You must wear the beetle amulet to avoid being consumed. But it's also true that you can't really know until it's actually happening. So you have a sort of knowledge which, even if later confirmed in each detail, is still not real knowledge. He will weigh your heart and, if it's too heavy, you'll be swallowed up. What is this extra element that is mingled in when you arrive at the ordained spot? Thank you, Ray. Oh, thank you, T. (laughs) (sighs) So that was um, this this moment. So that's when you just got home then. Mm Mm-hmm. That was the first poem that I wrote. I actually wrote, started writing a poem in the hospital. And the first thing I, believe it or not, and the first thing I did when I got home was finish that poem. But then this was the 
uh, poem that I wrote after that. And and w- so f- for po- the poems for you, because it takes like a, a great deal of also energy in some way for the poems. Yeah. But also it seems like um, sometimes you don't have a choice. Like that's the, yeah. the necessity is to, to use whatever energy you have yeah, <laughs> because it probably was part of your getting well or healing mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Well, when you have a really strange and shocking experience, um, the world looks different to you, you know, and then you have to explore that. And I mean, being a writer is such a core part of my identity that that's how I deal with it. Yeah. It doesn't seem like there's any separation. Hmm. Between me and being a writer? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do write pretty constantly, yeah. And what, what do you mean by that, right? Oh, you mean how often do I write? Yeah. I would say, uh, you know, I, I try to write something every week, and sometimes I don't succeed, but, you know, if I don't write something within two weeks, I start to get a little anxious. <laughs> yes, yeah. Has it has that ever happened? And then finding oh, the way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say two weeks is about as long as I go without writing. Though these days, although I'm sure, like with that notebook that you carry mm-hmm. around, do you have I, it with you right now? Well, is it? Because because maybe, maybe yeah, that's something that you're always writing. Oh yeah, there it is. The proof is here on the table now. <laughs> Another book. <laughs> A blank book. And do you yeah. also draw, draw in it too? No, do you I, sketch I can't draw at all. Children, children draw better than I do. <laughs> well, that's probably because they're just trying to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, well, maybe maybe the next book of 